Fish Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Aram Layton, and I'm joined by Craig Mish, Sirius XM radio host, host of the Swings and Mishes podcast, and Marlon's Twitter figure. Craig, thank you for joining me today. Got plenty to talk about, of course, season recap. We're in the middle of the postseason, but there's plenty going on with the Marlins, not on the field, but a lot going on. Thank you again for joining me. Aram, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So first and foremost, congratulations on launching your podcast, Swings and Mishes, as part of the Five Reasons Sports Network. You've already had some amazing interviews, Marlins GM Michael Hill, players like Dan Straley, Austin Dean. You humanized Scott Boris, the super agent uh, who was Jose Fernandez's agent and a, a guy that was very close with Jose. He really showed some interesting perspective on what kind of person Jose was as well. What was your favorite interview to do so far and What's it been like launching that podcast? Yeah, they, they've all been good. I don't know that I could single out one in particular. I think that uh, Jeremy Taché and I came up with the idea of doing two podcasts to remember Jose Fernandez. So that that is one that just kind of sticks out that we really got that accomplished. And I was, you know, want to thank Scott Boris for doing it. And also Tom Kohler, who shared some really uh, interesting stories. And so it's hard to say that your favorite was surrounded by arguably the worst thing that's ever happened in terms of sports in South Florida history, but at least we were able to, uh, you know, remember that day, um, you know, launching the podcast was, was something that I really didn't know how it would be received because again, the Marlins locally do have interest, but nationally it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of walking a tightrope here trying to figure out if you're going to get a lot of people to download it and listen and, and the response has been great. So and we even started Arm late in the season. So I, I think next year we'll really ramp this up and, and take it to the next level by using that really weak cliche. But that's kind of where we're out. We're at at this point. So, uh, you know, it's we'll we'll do a few more here. I'll have uh, Michael Sonby doing some with Jeremy Taché. I'll do some as well and do some interviews. And then come spring training, which is really my bread and butter because I'm able to cover all the teams. I think that we'll not just do the Marlins, we'll expand it maybe to some other players and, and teams and stories and things like that. So I, I appreciate you mentioning it. And so far, so good. I'm, I'm excited about how it's gone. You really were able to give people an insight to what Scott Boris is like, because I feel like a lot of people don't, he's not really in the media. He doesn't talk a lot. He's really just working his tail off. And a lot of people, everyone almost knows his name because he's one of the biggest guys in, in baseball in terms of agents, probably the biggest baseball agent. But a lot of people don't get to hear from him. And it was really cool to hear from him in another context other than defending his clients and, and, and trying to make more money for his clients and just talking about what a great person he was and, and talking about his experience with him. That was probably my favorite episode of yours so far. And what, do, what was it like to have some guys like that be able to tell you a personal account on Jose Fernandez? I think for 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 Scott and and for him doing it obviously it's it's much appreciated and for a lot of the people that I've had and will have on the podcast I think that I'm most proud that I'm I've been able you know personally to jump in and kind of gain some not just local but national respect to where they recognize that people are actually listening and paying attention to my work so I didn't know that I would ever really get there I'm going to be honest with you I mean we're talking about me covering the Marlins for many, many years and really stepping into more of a newsbreaking figure over the last few years. And it, it was really interesting kind of how that came about last winter. And so now I suppose that 
when I make requests, it's it's taken more seriously maybe than it than it was in the past. And I don't and I'm humble about that. I really appreciate that. And all the people who say that they were listening to the podcast and are downloading it and and commending me like people like yourself and a lot of people, especially even in the Marlins organization and the Marlins community, it really does mean a lot. So uh, I you know I've I've tried to really be as impartial as I can with this. I think that my coverage personally of the Marlins is as much down the middle as anybody could possibly be. I see positive, I see negative. I try to bring them both and cover them fairly as much as I can and continue to develop the persona of somebody who really covers the Marlins as much as he possibly can on a day-to-day basis. My Sirius XM show obviously covers all sports and I do cover all Major League Baseball teams, but I, I feel like along with you guys and myself trying to really dive more into what's happening with the Marlins will give people both on a local and national perspective more insight as to what's really happening. And something you mentioned earlier, which, which was a good point, is you kind of had to take a leap of faith here where you weren't sure how it was going to work nationally. You weren't sure how the reception was going to be, especially at this time in Marlins baseball, where they're really in a transition period. Interest level isn't at a high. Obviously, you're doing really well, and it's really commendable because I think for that reason, the Marlins are kind of lacking some of that in-depth coverage that you provide. You mentioned last winter being able to be the news-breaking guy on that a lot of those big trades, Yelich, Stanton, Ozuna, especially the Ozuna and Stanton trades. I remember you really uh, giving a lot more coverage because there was a lot more moving pieces to that, but you also did break a lot of information on the Yelich trade, which seemed to happen a little bit quicker. What was it like being the guy that was breaking some of the biggest trades down in baseball that offseason? It meant a lot because those were relationships that I've had. And I, I suppose in, in the newsbreaking business, you call them sources. So we'll just for that purpose use sources. But for many, many years, these are people that I developed relationships with and never really even considered doing what I did last winter. I've broken stories short through the years here and there, but I really never considered doing this because I didn't know Aram how to monetize this sort of thing. Now, I suppose the way that you would do it would be working for a specific entity and break news. But at SiriusXM, I'm hosting shows. So the news breaking element isn't what it is in some other places. In fact, if you go back amongst all of the hosts on SiriusXM, I probably could make the claim that I break more news than any host that's on there, baseball, football, basketball, any sport. And that's just because they value uh, talk shows, they value entertaining hosts, and they try to forward any stories that are out there. So it was a weird dynamic for me just kind of jumping out there and and doing it more. But as I've talked about many times with other people, they said, why this past year? Why all of a sudden? It wasn't me. I don't deserve the credit. It was the big names that were traded. That's what everybody was chasing. And that's kind of why my name was out there was because if you trade the best player on your team, Whoever's going to be involved in that story is going to be kind of part of that story, too. If it's this offseason and the Marlins are making all kinds of moves, they may be interesting for people. But nationally, there's only one player on a national scope that people are interested in seeing what happens with. And that's JT Real Muto. Last offseason, you had D. Gordon, you had Yelich, you had Ozuna and you had Stan. You had four players. And luckily enough, three of the four, I was able to provide probably as much or more information on their deals than anybody else in the country. And it was a product of those guys. It really wasn't a product of me. I just happened to be in it 
I decided last July, Aram, that when when uh, when they were talking about Stan potentially getting traded the first time, and and the two teams that were interested in him, and I was the first to report that was San Francisco and St. Louis, and that was at the trade deadline. I decided at that time, you know what? I'm going to devote my entire off season to doing this. Let me see if there's a way that I can use this and monetize it or get to the point career-wise that I can make this into something besides just posting things on Twitter. And fortunately, I found the podcast as really the way to take that, I think, and really use it as a conduit for the things that I do by breaking news on there and talking about some of the things that I do on there. And hopefully I'll be able to do more of that in the future. And, you know, some things are in the works for the winter meetings potentially, which would be really exciting. I could do just podcasting constantly the whole entire time there with breaking news and doing things. But I think that's what this podcast does that I'm doing is it gives me the opportunity to get there because just simply breaking news on Twitter, it's fun for me and it's cool. And a lot of people follow me and, and have me on notifications. And yes, there's that thrill of hitting that button and hit send. But in the end, there does have to have some value to doing what I'm doing. So I'm hoping that this podcast is what it is. Yeah, unfortunately, you can uh, monetize retweets. But the one thing I wanted <laughs> to ask you about is that Stanton trade, right? It was probably the most dramatic trade of all of the Marlins trades they made. Obviously, he's the most high-profile player. But it was also just the moving pieces, you know, the the rare no-trade clause that the Marlins gave him, his strange interest in wanting to be on the coasts rather than really focusing on contenders – uh, even though he did factor that into the mix. How was it playing around with all of Stanton's little quirks there with the deal and what he might veto and new information coming in seemingly every hour? Yeah, it was not easy, but it was thrilling to kind of be considered a source that people would use in that trade. And I think that on every level, it was it felt amazing to me that that I was getting so much help covering that story. I could have been shut out by every single situation, every single person. And instead, I was met with open arms in that story. And, yeah, there were definitely pieces to, to the deal that I was following along the way. And you know, some of the big pieces were obviously him uh, meeting with the Giants at the time and getting that down to the specific day and time. Uh, getting the piece in the Cardinals trade offer, which ine- which inevitably led to the Marlins getting that same player in the Marcelo Zuna trade. So that certainly was it. And then, of course, the biggest piece of the whole thing was something that I was sitting on for days, which was knowing the four teams. And, and I had worked on that was the hardest thing to work on, getting the four teams that he approved a trade to. And knowing that in my heart of hearts, while I thought there, you know, I was playing those percentages with San Francisco and St. Louis. Once I found out that those were the four teams that, that he would go to. And I posted that, that really created the frenzy at that point, because then we knew, man, there's a chance he's not going to accept this trade to San Francisco and St. Louis because he's got these four teams that he was going to go to. So uh, in the end, I did not get the team correct that I thought he would go to. It ended up being the Yankees. I think a lot of that was caused by the Marlins' lack of leverage, having the full no-trade clause. And once he said no to San Francisco and St. Louis, I think the Marlins had a backup plan, and I think they pivoted immediately to the Yankees before they would have lost any more leverage at that point because that would have, I think they would have even gotten less. So that was that was definitely the pinnacle of it. But yeah, you're right; it didn't stop there. I ended up breaking the Ozuna trade, 
And then about a few weeks later, I was the one that said that the Brewers are the team that's chasing Christian Yelich, and he ended up getting traded to the Brewers 48 hours later. So <laughs> just it was one of those things that was wild. I actually knew about the D. Gordon trade too, but uh, I was told at the time that it was there were some things in motion potentially to move Stanton before Gordon. And so I was waiting. And meanwhile, there were people that I was trusting. I was like, yeah, D Gordon's going to Seattle, but I'm just waiting for Stan to get traded first, San Francisco or St. Louis. And then he's going to go to Seattle. Everyone's like, well, why don't you report that? I'm like, well, I kind of got to do here what, what, what I think is going to happen in chronological order. You know, you got to trust your people and nothing's official and, and don't ruin the deal for people, so to speak. So there was a lot going on at that time. And it does take me back to it. It's fun to get a little insight on the crazy world of breaking news. Uh, It's definitely hard to keep up with even as a fan, so I couldn't imagine being the one breaking those that news. But you mentioned Yelich, of course, in in, in the trade as well. Him having an MVP season has sparked a lot of conversation about how the Marlins don't have a top 100 prospect in the latest uh, top 100 MLB pipeline list. Obviously, we we know that why the Marlins made those trades. I think any educated fan isn't really questioning it. And the Yelich return at the time, and still is, a hefty return. Uh, how important is it for the Marlins to be players in international free agency after you see them just hosting uh, the Mesa brothers and Sandy Gaston? With the Marlins' state of, of, of their farm system, they obviously vastly improved it from a bottom three farm system to about middle of the pack. But when you're in a full-throttle rebuild, they're still far off from where they need to be, especially when trading back-to-back MVP candidates or probably MVPs. How important is it for them to get these international free agents? And what's the latest you're hearing on Gaston and the Mesa brothers? Well, I think that the international is important, and I don't think that everyone should just be focusing on on these three players. But I understand that that they're really the best players left, I suppose, in the international market. And, and and I and I also don't think people understand that it's very difficult, even with the amount of emphasis that the Marlins are putting on international prospects, it's very difficult right now for them to sign anyone because these are relationships that are cultivated with these kids and with these families in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and, and some of these other countries years and years in advance. And since the Marlins ignored it for such a long period of time, for the most part, yes, they flipped some coins and got lucky on some players for cheap. Yes, that's true. But in general, they didn't devote a lot of resources to that, and now they are. So the fruits of that labor will not be seen until 2019 and 2020. I, this year is just I didn't ex- I didn't have any expectations for it because they just jumped right in. And so yes, the question becomes: Is one of their biggest investments? going to be Victor Victor Mesa from uh, Cuba, his brother, Victor Mesa Jr., and then Sandy Gaston. So uh, Sandy Gaston is a player that may have some future potential. He's very young. Uh, It was reported that he had uh, some issues potentially with PEDs in, uh, in the Dominican Republic or wherever that was. Look, the bottom line with this kid is that he's going to come cheap. The Marlins had interest in him in the past. And Aram, if so many teams were interested, he's been a free agent for a long time. I mean, we're talking about months. That's like years in the real world here. So I'm not, I don't know what he's going to be, but he should not be the focus at all of what's happening and not even put in the same category or conversation or even on the same field, in my opinion, 
with Victor Victor Mesa, not even his brother. Victor Victor Mesa is the prize to this, but there, it's so confusing and there are so many moving parts to try and understand how this is all getting done. What are the overlying underlying factors as to what he wants to do? Uh, how much you believe he really wants to play with the Marlins or is it, is it about the money? Is, you know, is this a three for one deal where any team that gets Victor Victor has to take the other two? They'll say, no, of course, that's the, what they should say, but it may be the case. It may not be the case. It may be that one team gets Victor Victor Mesa and the brother and then Gaston goes somewhere else. But, and again, this is not to denigrate Gaston at all. He's a very young kid, and I hope he has a great career and a bright future. But he has been out there for a long time at this point already. Anybody could have signed him for, you know, 500 or 600 grand or a million. I, I think when this plays out, you're going to see his number very low. Uh, but that's just the way that I predict it and I see it. Teams have had a chance to look at him, and hopefully they'll develop him and get him to where he needs to be. Uh, the Marlins and the Orioles, as everybody has reported, is are the two teams that are the most heavily involved but i was told that there is a third team that is definitely pursuing uh victor victor in a big way uh, i don't know about the other two because of the pool money that this other team doesn't have as compared to the others so this may even create a third team and more competition to get him uh aram i think that victor victor is going to sign with the team that offers the most money i think that i if it's the orioles i think he's going to go to the orioles if it's the marlins i think he's going to go there you see miami going out and getting money in a trade for international money over the weekend so it, i still will stand pat on that prediction that i made months ago the team that offers the most gets him we'll just have to see what happens and you mentioned he might sign for for the most money the, the baltimore orioles have about two and a half million more in international pool money than the Marlins. They went out and made that trade for Ryan Lilly or, or traded Ryan Lilly for some international money the other day. A prospect that had a really good season in the minor leagues was starting to pick up some steam uh, and, and get a little discussion in the Marlins organization. How much do you have any idea what, what the Marlins got in international pool money? And did, is it going to really make an impact on closing that gap on the Orioles? Yeah, the Marlins won't report that. They haven't through the years. From what I'm told, uh, at least from a source that I know um, in in the conversations that they feel that the Marlins are desperate to get more money. And that's, and this was a little bit of a desperation move to add more money to make sure they secured uh, Victor Victor. So if that is indeed the case, then we could even see another trade here. And, and I, you know, I don't, I don't really know if it's a good sign that they're getting more money or if it's a bad sign that they feel like they still need to get more to, to land this kid. So that's why this is so confusing, this story, and I'm getting so much information from different people. And the other day somebody asked me, hey, are you, you, know, you going to break the story? I'm like, there's almost no chance I am going to break the story. Like This is just one of those where there are smarter people and more in people than I am on this one. I'm trying my best just to stay afloat with it. But it's 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 been tough. It's been tough to cover, and you know they wouldn't let the media in to even watch. So I'm just kind of going with the flow and trying to pick up on on as many conversations as I can. I think next week he's going to sign with someone. Uh, I can't say for sure that it is the Marlins. I feel like they are probably the favorites, but it wouldn't surprise me if some team swooped in and had more money and said, you know, we'll we'll do it because again, the pool money. 
is completely different than the way international free agency used to be when they were signing those kids like Puig and everyone else for 50 million, 100 million. Uh, these the agencies and the families probably should be maxing out every dollar that these teams are willing to offer. So I can't blame them. We'll just have to see if the Marlins are the team to pony up that money. And you beat me to my next question because I was had the same internal struggle when the Marlins announced the, the Ryan Lilly trade. I, I was thinking, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Are they do they have a certain price point where they know they can get Mesa, or do they feel like they're way behind in the talks? And so that's why. I was wondering what the figure was, and I'm wondering once again if they if they do make another move. But it seems like it's been something on their mind for a while, as you saw them make the Cameron Maben trade to get some pool money at at right. the deadline. It's something that's definitely been on their mind. So the Mesa brothers are looking like a package. So it, it seems like the, it's it's both or nothing. And with the Orioles in there, it, it seems tough to beat them on two million. And like you said, I guess it's really going to come down to whether it's about the money for them or where they want to play. And of course the Marlins do have the advantage of being close to home for them. But at the end of the day, that really hasn't helped them in the past when, when they were not really huge players in international free agency. So we'll see how it plays out. But you mentioned the family should max out every dollar. There's no guarantees. You know, if they don't make it to the big leagues, that, that money on the initial signings, pretty much all they got. So I, I really I'm a little wary as you are to to see if the Marlins really can beat the Orioles with the best offer or this third mystery team. But another thing the Marlins have been doing in the news, uh, which has been rivaling the international free agency news, maybe dominating it as of yesterday, was they let go their pitching coach Juan Nieves, assistant hitting coach Frank Menachino, and the most surprising of all was first base coach and infield guru Perry Hill. Uh, obviously the new regime wants to bring in their own guys. Uh, so I understand letting Nieves go and Menachino, uh, who have been with the Marlins organization for a while. But Perry Hill's like widely regarded as one of the best infield coaches, if not the best infield coach in the game. How do you upgrade over Perry Hill? What's the Marlins rationale in letting a guy like Perry Hill go? Yeah, I think they they want to uh, add a somebody who's more involved in base running, according to Joe Frazzaro. I read his column yesterday, and you can always pick up, um, you know, kind of little internal nuggets from some of the things that Joe says because he's very tight, clearly, with them. So, um, you know, the other part of it is is that you know I I hate to say uh, that when that that they're very savvy of things that are said. But I did find it very peculiar a few weeks ago when Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, who is the best there is in this business and the best who ever has been in this business, uh, had a report that there were like eight to ten teams that were interested in Perry Hill in case he was a free agent. And that that's the kind of thing where it's like most people look at that story and say – uh, oh, wow, you know, wow, he has so many teams. And then somebody like me looks at that story and says, why is that out there? Like, wh- why is this coming out now? Um, you know, I, I really don't know the dynamics as to what goes on behind the scenes. But like Hill, as I said yesterday on Twitter, he has his place in history. I think probably the Marlins just want somebody who can do more things besides coach uh, the infield. And I know that analytics is a big part of what they do. There are some people who are retorting to me that that Hill is into analytics and I'm not right. But, you know, I I can only tell you what I'm told. And then I don't know if there's there's any other stuff in play here. I just don't think that he 
ended up being one of uh, Denbo and Jeter's guys. I think that's a possibility there too, but I would just be speculating on all of these things. Remember, Perry Hill, first time around Aram, left in some really bad states when they let him go. He ended up coming back again a second time. Uh, I, I think he'll probably end up with a job. Uh, I'm just, I'm curious where that will end up being because again, if we go by the report, that there's all these teams that are clamoring for him to join them as in, as a coach and infield instructor, uh, I wish him all the best, and I hope that works out for him. And you mentioned the analytical approach. That's something that some have said Perry Hill is not on, not totally on board. Some say he is. Uh, at the end of the day, the Marlins never shifted very often uh, until this season. The entire league shifted exponentially more often. I, I don't know what the figures are. I overheard it on a broadcast the other day, but it was pretty staggering how many more shifts we saw this season than in the past and the Marlins definitely upped it a lot too so that shows Perry Hill adjusting but going into this analytic conversation it's kind of where the game is going or has gone the last few years in the past Derek Jeter has been said to have not been a big analytic guy but we've seen the Marlins organization pivot on that a little bit Uh, what's your take on the Marlins stance on analytics from top to bottom I think I think Jeter privately has probably changed his opinion on it I think that for him, it's not something that he played with or grew up with or, quite frankly, even fully understands. But he has some very smart people that are now working for him that do. And I think that he probably, as he said many times before, his quote that he uses over and over again is, we don't want to use analytics the most. We want to use it the best. And I don't think that he'll ever relent from that. I think that there's always going to be that quality of player that he'll see in himself somebody who works hard and somebody who grinds it out and somebody who deserves an opportunity. I don't think that'll ever be lost. And I don't think that'll ever be lost in baseball. Also, even with the Astros winning like they do, they have some players on that team that are not analytical babies and just are you know grinders and great players and veteran leaders. And, and so I, I think that, that the Marlins are headed in that direction. They've already taken a lot of steps toward that. And I think that the Yankees were arguably one of the leaders in the class in terms of employing that both at the minor league and major league level. And I think you're going to see an emulation as to what the Yankees did. And I think that Derek Jeter recognizes that if that's a part of this that will make it work, then then I will try it. I'm, I'm going to guess that those are the sort of things that he's saying. And from all indications as to who they've brought in and the way that they approach this draft, and the way that they are doing things at the minor league level with StatCast and TrackMan and everything else, which they've never had in the past, I think that the Marlins are maybe not all in on analytics, but they certainly are headed way more in that direction than they ever have been. And going back to the coaches real quick, obviously they let just about every coach go not named Don Mattingly. Mattingly's under contract for one more season. And when Derek Jeter was asked about Don Mattingly, he gave a Peculiar answer. You said he's st- still under contract, isn't he? Which usually you'll see a GM or, or CEO or president kind of back their coach if they want to keep him around saying he's doing a great job with his team, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of a, a non-committal answer while still committing a little bit. What's your take on the future of Don Mattingly in this organization? And is the new regime going to want to bring in their own manager as well eventually? Yeah, I think that the way that they approached it 
is is as they've used uh, the word build is that they're building from the ground. Okay, so in year one of building this organization from the ground, if you want to use that analogy, Don Mattingly is is in their mind in year one of managing the team. And I don't think that it would have been a fair assessment to judge him strictly on this year because everyone knew that the team was going to lose close to 100 games. Uh, I don't think that I mean, it's it's certainly possible they could extend Mattingly one more year beyond the year that he has left. But if, if there aren't significant changes on the field next year in terms of wins and losses, I do think that next year would be Mattingly's last year managing the team. They're going to have to show improvement. I mean, we know how how badly Derek Cheater wants to win, even with this team losing a lot of games and, and in development kind of years. I don't know that that will happen next year. I don't. I don't. I, I see hope for the future. I don't see a ton of hope next year in 2019. I don't think this team is going to be a lot better. So there is that chance that if if Mattingly's on-field record with the Marlins doesn't improve by five games, six games, I don't know what the number is, ten games. I think that there could be a change in 2020. And that's the thing. I feel like they're almost setting the poor guy up for failure here because how can the team be much better next year? I mean. Obviously, you can have guys like Brinson figure it out, improve a little bit. Uh, some of the younger guys start to get called up here and there. But as we get into year two, what are, what's the Marlins' plan for year two? Is it just more of the same? Are you still in that adjustment period where you're still far from where you need to be? Or, or how can this team really be more competitive in 2019? Yeah, as of right now, I don't see a way that there is one. So we'll have to see what they do in the offseason. Their pitching will be better, so we could definitely say that. it'll The starting pitching, at least, will be better. They have young pitchers that are developing, and so you, you have to, if you're starting with the positive at the top, you look at that and say, okay, Pablo Lopez and Sandy Alcantara and Jose Arena, Dan Straley, Garrett Richards, maybe Neidert and the minors, the starting staff, is going to be very competitive and be involved in a lot of games. But in this world that we live in launch angle and home runs, the Marlins have no chance to compete against these teams that are going to score average four, five, six runs a game. It's just not going to happen based on what we've seen, especially in the second half of the year. It's going to be interesting to see how the Marlins piece this together formatingly next season and potentially give him a better opportunity to win. As of right now, on paper, that does not look possible considering the fact that they're going to lose 20, 25 home runs from Bohr, another 20 from Dietrich, and then who knows if, if JT Realmuto will be on the team or not. So I do believe they'll go out and have to sign one-year mercenaries to potentially try and hit 20 home runs before the break and they inevitably trade them. But Mattingly, yes, he's in a tough spot. But at the same time, I think that he would tell you he's in a great spot. He's one of 30 Major League Baseball managers. There's only a certain amount of these jobs out there and even less of them that are even available. He has one year left in his contract. I think he'll have to show some improvement on the field somehow next year. I, I don't know that that's fair to him because of, of what they have set up. But inevitably, my opinion would be in 2020 provided there isn't some sort of improvement on the field next year, that they'll probably go in a different direction in 2020. And you mentioned signing these one-year guys. Obviously, Bohr could be a candidate to be brought back, potentially, uh, because I don't think there'll be a lot of interest in him in the open market. Uh, what, do you, what do you think the Marlins do with Derek Dietrich? Is that a guy that'll be moved to the winter meetings? Is that a guy that, that won't be in a Marlins uniform coming next year? I think that's something you did say uh, towards the end of the season, that you did not think he would be in a Marlins uniform in 2019. 
uh, if he is moved, who's the guy that can fill his spot in the outfield? Uh, is there any really prospect that looks like he could be there next year other than Austin Dean? And has Austin Dean proved enough to uh, be the guy next year? What's your take on, on both of those questions? I know I give you a little two-parter here. Yeah, I don't think Bohr comes back. I don't think Dietrich comes back. I think Dietrich, for the money that he'll make next year in arbitration, they can probably get a player who's better defensively that can play multiple positions and do more or less the same offensively. So I don't think he'll be back, and I don't think they'll be able to trade him. In terms of the outfield, I think that Brinson will get another opportunity, regardless of how his spring goes. I would suppose he'll start opening day in center field again for the Marlins. This time maybe they'll have a backup plan of some kind, somebody like Mabin, John Jay, some sort of veteran that can potentially play there. Uh, I, I believe Brian Anderson will end up playing at right field. He had a good year for them. And then left field will be a question mark. Austin Dean, I think, showed enough to me to get another opportunity to compete for the starting left field job, but they'll have to have a backup plan for sure. Uh, some veteran that can potentially play for them until they inevitably trade them at the all-star break. So I would expect an outfield of Anderson and Brinson and Austin Dean, and even along with probably two other players to be determined, at least one veteran of some kind. I think Sierra is, would be much better served to spend the year in the minor league. And who are some of those one-year candidates? I saw you mention on Twitter John Jay potentially. Are there any other guys that you think the Marlins could go after and uh, for a one-year deal, a cheap deal, that kind of like a Cameron Mabin type of deal that they made last summer? Yeah, I'm not sure about outfield, but I think like at first base, a good comp kind of guy would be a, a pseudo decent fielding first base. I think O'Brien will get a chance, but you know who knows what will happen there. Like Lucas Duda is probably the kind of name that you'll see. He did a one-year deal with Kansas City, and then they traded him. I, I think those are the kind of names. Logan Morrison somebody that can hit 30 home runs and be somewhat of a threat in that lineup. You cannot have JT Real Muto on an island in terms of power on that team next year. You just simply can't do it. Now, Brinson, regardless of what his on-base or batting average is, has shown enough exit velocity and power that he probably can hit 20 home runs in the big leagues, but that is not enough. They're going to have to have someone in addition to JT have that power potential. So uh, I, I don't know the answer to that yet, Aaron. We'll just kind of have to see how that plays out. I know they'll try to move Castro if they can, too. Maybe there's someone that they can find that could be a 20 home run bat there. But uh, I, I know the park is difficult, but it was just as difficult two years ago when Stanton and Ozuna were hitting all those home runs. They got to find a couple of guys that can be a threat in that lineup. And the Marlins obviously have some prospects that boast some power in Monty Harrison and Eisen Diaz packs a little bit of a punch at second base, could be a 10 to 15 home run guy as well who could get a September call up. You mentioned Brian Anderson playing right field potentially with Martin Prado supposedly holding down third if he can stay healthy. What's the Marlins' long-term plan at third, do you think, with Prado's contract eventually go coming up in the next year? Do you think Brian Anderson moves back to third even though he showed really well in right field? Or do they move him back to third and, and with the surplus of outfield prospects end up calling one of those guys up and putting them in the outfield? He, Anderson may be a better right fielder than he is third baseman. At least that's kind of the way that I see it. So I, I think that they should keep him there if they possibly can. I don't think they do have a long-term solution at third base, and I don't even know that there's one in the minor league. So my guess is Prado will play out the season if he stays healthy. They'll move him in July, and then we'll get a clearer picture as to what they would be. Of course, they have Miguel Rojas who could play third base 
and plays as much as they need to. But there are not a lot of long-term plans for the starting eight players on the Marlins as I see it right now. I know that they would like to say that uh, Brinson is the, the future and the starting center fielder for the next 10 years, but how can anybody say that based on this past year? I mean, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Anderson, I think, is going to be a above-average player, maybe a very good player, and maybe he just was tired at the end of the season. That's certainly possible, too, but I don't project Brian Anderson to be a 30-home run guy unless there's a significant change in swing path and, and maybe there's something analytics that can point to him uh, you know, getting more of, of, of launch or lift or whatever it is. Certainly, we saw when Yelich went to Milwaukee, he showed that, too. But I think that that's a big, big hole for the team is finding somebody who could play that third base position. My guess is it'll be attacked either via free agency or in the draft. And with money eventually coming off the books, we've mentioned in the past that, you know, Martin Prado contract will come off the books. Wei Yin Chen in a couple of years, you got Volquez off the books next year, Ziegler off the books, Tazawa off the books, a lot of money freeing up obviously the marlins aren't going to be big spenders but could you see the marlins spending a little bit more than last offseason with some money opening up i don't know the answer to that i wouldn't i don't know what the point would be honestly i mean if the point is for fans to get all riled up that they didn't spend money and they want to show that they are then you know that's one thing but it just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me i just don't see them being good next year no matter what they do and again, the real Muto story is going to be the dominant one, too, because if he is gone, then they're even in a bigger hole than they are right now. And what's the point of, of trying to dig out of a hole just to win 70 games? I don't see any point to that. So I think the real time to start judging this franchise is, is going to be I mean, you could judge now based on the way that they handle themselves and do certain things for sure. But I think the on field product needs to show some improvement in 2020 and the word development can continue to stay as long as they want it to 2019, I think is still going to be a developmental type season. I think 2020 is when you want to see them competitive. And if you look at, look, the the Astros are the model franchise at major league baseball right now. It would be a dream for the Marlins to end up in that situation. But this is why I have no problem. If they were to lose a hundred games next year, a hundred games a year after a hundred games a year after that, Houston set for years and years of winning World Series and being competitive. And I know patience is hard to preach, but I would be all in on that plan if they just decided to load up on the first pick and second pick in the draft in the next few years. I think the Marlins feel like they're closer than some people think that they can kind of fast track this a little bit. I just hope that that is indeed the case and they, they hit on that because if they don't, that would be a mistake. And you mentioned the Astros as, as we're going to talk about the postseason a little bit here as we wind down. Probably my favorite to win the World Series. Probably everyone's favorite to win the World Series right now. But I'm going to ask you anyways, who is your favorite to win the World Series? And and who do you think the matchup's going to be? Yeah, I picked the Astros last year to win the World Series. I was the only one to do that. I picked them again to win the World Series this year. They're a better team. I don't think it's close. I think that anything can happen in a seven-game series, certainly uh, with the Red Sox, if they indeed move on, or the Yankees, if they rally to win two. I don't see the Brewers being competitive in a series with Houston at all. Uh, the Dodgers showed that they could last year, and they did. They took it right down to Game 7. And I've talked about this many times. If Alex Bregman doesn't throw out Greg Bird rounding third play- base at the plate, there's a chance the Yankees move on last year and not Houston. 
Houston's bullpen is way more fortified this year than it was last year. I mean, Ken Giles is gone. Uh, you know, Davinsky, who I happen to love, had a really tough postseason. He's not even on the postseason roster. They now have Osuna. You saw Colin McHugh pitch for them. They even, this kid who played um, high school in Broward County for South Broward High School, he lives very close to me, uh, Josh James. He's going to be a star in the big leagues, too. They have him on the postseason roster. McCullers is now out of the bullpen. Aaron, this is just the best team in baseball. It's just not close. They just dismantled the Indians, and and they are going to be a dynasty. Now, like other dynasties in sports, like the Warriors, uh, potentially, like the New England Patriots have been for a long time, anything can happen when you get to a Game 7. But the fact that I, I firmly believe that Houston is going to be either in the World Series or losing the World Series, we're talking about this year, next year, the year after that, the year after that, eventually they're going to have to make some decisions because they can't pay everybody $300 million. That's not going to happen. So you can't pay – Altuve is locked up, but you can't pay Bregman and Springer and Garrett Cole. Uh, you know, Verlander will be gone. Carlos Correa will need a new contract. I mean, they're, they're, it's going to be almost impossible for them to maintain this over a 10-year period. But for the next three years, if they keep everyone outside of Keuchel, who will be gone, he'll be a free agent and go somewhere else. But they'll just put somebody else in there and be fine. And their farm system, by the way, is as deep and loaded as any team in baseball. The only thing, Aram, that they don't have in Houston that is a catcher. And the Marlins do have a catcher. So I wonder if after the season, if talks – are re-engaged. Brian McCann, I'm sure, will retire. Maldonado's done a nice job for them, by the way. I don't know if he'll be back or not. Uh, they, they have Max Stasi. I, I could see that being a fit once again this offseason. But again, do the, do the Astros have enough return for Real Muto if he turns down a contract? I think they do. I think that is the team that they should deal with. Because, fortunately for me, I get a chance to see them train in Palm Beach and have some pretty good connections there i love that organization and some of their young players and i think if the marlins were to hold pat on that i think that houston may be willing to give up some stuff the only question would be aram is that would the astros trade for real muto without working out an extension before a trade i think that may be the key to getting a deal done and if if that is done i i could see that happening but again marlins will make every effort to sign jt i assume We'll just have to stay on top of that in a few months. And it's something that he's been said to be a little more receptive to. But the Marlins-Astros discussions with JT Riomito have been pretty prominent in the last six months or so. But the, the big hiccup being that they don't want to give up Kyle Tucker. You were saying before how uh, the Astros can't lock everyone up. You know, Someone's got to go eventually. And George Springer will probably be one, the, the odd man out if, if we're thinking about Correa. Obviously, Altuve is locked up. Bregman is one of the best players in the league right now. Uh, could end up being Springer could end up being the, the odd man out. So Kyle Tucker could be that cheaper contingency plan with potentially a higher ceiling. So the Marlins will probably have to go elsewhere in terms of players in the Astros system. And that's something that uh, it'll be remained. It, it remains to be seen whether the Astros have enough to get real Muto without Tucker. I think they do. And I think uh, what you've said too, they have a lot of good pieces in there, but it's kind of a wait and see thing. Like you said, and, Hopefully the Marlins work out an extension with Yuri Muto because it seems like he could be the face of the franchise if he isn't already. I think he pretty much is already. But the Marlins kind of need that face, and uh, it'll be interesting to see which direction they go. I'm sure they're going to try and lock him up like you said, but if you can't lock him up, you got to move on, and uh, they could get a hefty haul for him. Uh, but before we uh, wind down here, 
obviously you said the Marlins aren't going to be much better in, in 2019. Uh, what's your prediction? You, you think they're going to go for about the same record, even with a more bolstered rotation and a healthier rotation? Or could we see a, a, another step in the right direction? It's impossible to answer now because I don't know what their team is going to look like. If if you told me that this is the squad that they're rolling out, all you got to do is look at their record in August and September, and that'll tell you that they're going to be the same team, if not worse. But if they do decide to go out and get some offensive help, and I think that they will, then my prediction would certainly change. I picked them to win 68 games this past year, so I went under. I thought they'd be a little bit better than uh, what what most people thought. They ended up being about the same but they were really good in the first half. But again, uh, one another element to looking at their win-loss record, and look, the run differential was, I think, the worst in baseball or second worst in baseball. But the one thing that I don't see next year is I don't see the, the starting pitchers being bailed out by that epic bullpen run that they had last year in April, May, June, and into July. It was I, I don't know that I've ever seen in Marlins history that bullpen as good as it was with Ziegler and Steckenrider and Guerrero and Bearclaw, like those guys just were locked down for the first half. Anytime a Marlins starter threw five, six innings, they were able to close it out. And there are some people who feel like, well, they just kind of regressed to who they were. And certainly that could be the case, but I got to go into next year thinking they can't be nearly as good as they were. And that's troubling also. So um, troubling in, in the sense of on the field what their record is, but I've been very, very public on this. I don't care if they lose 100 games next year. I don't care if they lose 100 games in 2020. I want them to stay on the same path, not fast-track anything, get those high draft picks, continue to develop players like they got in this past draft, and get that fourth pick, whatever they have in the 2019, get the fourth pick again in the 2020. I am all for that. It's just very hard to sell patience to fans who have had to go through this several times. But that's just my feeling on it. I don't want to see any players brought in here on deals that they're going to end up being regretting. They are not going next year to beat out the Braves. I don't think they're beating out the Nationals. And and I don't think that there's a chance that the, the Phillies are worse. They're going to be better. So what's the point? You may as well just be down again for another year and then reassess it in 2020. So. I probably see right now about the same wins, if not the you know less. <laughs> I just can't see them being much better. I can't. And it's it's tough to get excited about that, but you, like you see people say so often, you just got to trust the process. But what anything going on uh, with with the Swings and Mishes podcast? Anything we can expect from you uh, in the off season? You mentioned the winter meeting, something that you might be covering. Anything else fans can look out for from you and uh, be excited to hear any content. Because I know we're Marlins fans are going to be eager for some content in the off season. Well, I think the immediate interesting part will be what we talked about earlier is is Victor Victor Mesa and how that plays out. One way or the other, that's going to be the most prominent story that that follows next. I think so that you can expect me to talk about in an upcoming podcast. I think following that, we're going to see more organizational changes, maybe new coaches brought in for next year. So I think those will be very interesting topics. But let's be honest and put all of our cards on the table here. There's going to be nothing that is going to be as interesting as the JT Real Muto offseason. I mean, this is it. This is the last great player that they have, their all-star and one way or the other, either he is going to be here long term or or 
maybe he'll be here under his current contract, which would be such a silly thing to do if they if they held it to it. But I that's going to be the one to me that we're going to follow, and and I think that will be the last big uh, great player on a Marlins story for a couple of years. So that's that's what I think that I'll be covering. Of course, the place to see that is is Swings and Mishes. They have their own Twitter account. Of course, you can follow Craig Mish on Twitter. Uh, Swings and Mishes is part of the Five Reasons Sports Network, which has really grown and become a huge hub for South Florida sports and really excited about the coverage that you guys are bringing. Of course, you can listen to Craig on SiriusXM where he talks fantasy sports, which is something I want to talk to you about another time for sure. Of course, as sure. the season comes back around, we'll talk fantasy baseball. I wish I could talk fantasy football with you. I might do that off the air because I could use some advice. I'm one in four so far. But anyways, Craig Mish on Twitter, Swings and Mishes on Twitter. And of course, you can see him on SiriusXM. And your podcast is on iTunes. Where else can uh, people listen to that podcast? Yeah, iTunes, Google Play, Android, anywhere where you can download an app. It's uh, you know, Chris Whittingham and Ethan Skolnick did a great job putting the Five Reasons Sports Network together. And I'm happy to be part of it. And certainly we are, are growing on, in a lot of different ways, both on the air and off the air in terms of advertising and things like that. So certainly anybody who's interested in being part of it, uh, we'd love to have you on board. And um, I appreciate you, Aaron, for having me on the podcast today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And next time we have some big Marlins news, uh, I'm hoping we'll have you on then too. I'm ready to do it whenever you want. All right. Thank you very much, Craig.